Pension scams and fraud have come up a few times in recent podcasts, and while everyone wants to stamp them out, the knock-on consequences for how pensions administer legitimate transfers are causing a lot of headaches. In this podcast, Phil Warner from Hargreaves Lansdowne talks me through the issues and possible solutions. really grateful to you uh, for um, raising this question and I've been keen to, to dig into this question of pension fraud and scams and the issues that have spun out of that that have caused the industry sometimes. So I think that's really helpful and I guess just as a starting point it'd be good just to think about this This kind of, if you rewind 10 years this, this really wasn't a major problem. I mean, you'd occasionally get fraud and issues and scams hitting pensions, but not much. So, I mean, to, to, I, I guess my starting was to what extent was, was pension freedom in 2015? How, how much was that an inflection point? Is everything that we're dealing with now really a consequence of that? I don't think it's directly connected, but it's definitely made the situation worse. Because as you say, if you go back 10 years, a bit longer, then it was mainly pension liberation that was the concern, as in people getting their money out of their pension before age 55 and then getting hit with huge tax charges and potentially losing their pension as well. And then, But then when we had the um, pension freedoms came along, it then became possible eventually to, if you wanted to, take all your money out of your pension in one go. So that, if you like, made it, sometimes more attractive to transfer because you had that flexibility but then i think it was also the fact that because it was easier to transfer people started thinking about where they could invest you then had people with maybe not the best motives coming up with fantastic ideas of where you could invest make an absolute fortune and then sometimes Maybe it did, maybe it did happen, but I think in a lot of cases they were could be quite high risk investments and sometimes even worse, so people ended up losing their money. To what extent, I mean, I appreciate there's a whole spectrum of sins and misdemeanors going on here, but as you say, I mean, some of them might just be genuine investments that are just a bit on the speculative end of the spectrum. Some of them were just... It was never really any good intent to invest people's money and give them a decent return, were there? I mean, some of them were just, some of them are just outright theft. It's, it's one of those things it's hard to pin down. I think that's one of the reasons that, that they're referred to as pension scams rather than outright theft. I think scam seems a little bit, if it's a bit, a cheeky thing rather than someone losing their life savings. So it's the language isn't great but the big the big problem was that it was there's a very fine line between something that's a bit speculative a bit risky and as you say is something that is an out and out scam yes that's true and actually proving that someone had nefarious intent from day one is, is, is pretty challenging isn't it they can always say no look this question you can you know holiday resort we're building on this, you know, this, this logging operation Slovenia was just it's a really good investment. And you're hard pressed to prove that it was definitely going to be a fraud from day one. So, no, I, I, I accept that. 
So what extent do you think this is a function of um, just the question of financial literacy? Because because one of the things that you know, persistently arises in all this is, is those very generous investment returns that entice people in. You, know, you can make double-digit returns year after year. So, so I mean, I, I guess there's two things there. One is people not having saved quite enough. So they're looking at that pot of money thinking, well, that's not really going to see me like through retirement. So they're easy pickings for someone who's saying, what, well, I can make more money for you. And then also their inability to discern good from bad. So they want more money and they, they're struggling perhaps to tell that this is not a smart investment. So, you know, to what extent do you think that those, those are kind of driving issues? I think they're probably the two driving issues. You've got people who've got a small defined contribution pot. When, and when I say small, I mean the amount which isn't going to be enough to get you through your retirement on its own, but it's still a substantial amount of money. So you could be talking, say, sixty, seventy thousand pounds, which is more money than anyone will see in a lump sum for a lot of people. You've then got the warning is quite often if it seems too good to be true, then it is too good to be true. And you're talking about, as you say, double digit return. If you go back far enough to I think when I first started, you had projections of fifteen percent. And that was the industry standard projection that was considered realistic, whether it was or not completely different, but that was the official projection rates at the time. And then you're asking people to look at being promised 10% and look at that and decide that's definitely too good to be true. So it's, it's, it's a combination of, of the two. It's not knowing what a really realistic return is, plus the fear of not having enough money. There's sometimes a suspicion that if they invested it themselves, they could do better than the pension companies. Put it all together and it's it's almost a hate yeah, almost a target market for fraudsters. Yeah, and there's a lot of money up for grabs, isn't it? I guess it's unrealistic to expect lawmakers or policymakers to regulatory authorities to ever stop these frauds, you know, bill is this you, know, you can you can to some extent you can curb their activities, but it's like a hydro, they are always gonna keep finding ways. And I I occasionally get text messages, you know, so they're gonna keep coming, aren't they? No, and I I don't think when we were originally pushing for something to be changed on pension transfers, it wasn't asking the government to solve this for us. It was because we had as an industry, we could identify things that didn't look right, that looked as if they were extremely dodgy. But if the member had that legal right to transfer, there was nothing we could do. We just had to let that transfer go ahead. Right, hold that thought. Let's come back to the moment. Just before we go there, because I want to talk a little bit about what the industry's asked for and what have been done about this. And so let's talk about that. But just before we go there, um, we've touched a little bit on this already. What do these scams look like? So I get contacted by someone who says, Look, you know, why don't you transfer your money to us? We'll give you a better retirement income. So then I go to my, to Hargreaves Lansdowne. I got my money with Hargreaves Lansdowne. Asked to transfer the money across to Big Bucks Pension Plan. And then they, they will tell me they're going to invest the money in some really fancy investment scheme. 
blah, the money kind of disappears. Just just talk a bit about what, what happens there. I think the key there is, do you understand where the money's being invested? Do you understand what you're being charged for doing that? Because it, it could be layers of charges. So a little bit gets taken here, a little bit of commission there, an annual fee gets taken, and then that all adds up. And then it's understanding where the money's being invested. Is it realistic? Is it something you understand? And if not, that's where you should be speaking to someone else, maybe taking advice, maybe taking guidance. But just to make sure you understand what's happening with your money, and it is real money. Because I think that's one thing with pensions is that it can seem like it's not really your money because you can't actually touch it yet or use it yet. And just to unpick that pension proposition a bit, because there's there's a pension scheme which has to be authorised by HMRC. Um, so I have to set up a pension arrangement. And then within that, there's an investment process. So I'm then putting my money into this Bulgarian holiday resort that's going to develop this. 15% of the US pension funds. Are these scams? Is there, is there a direct collusion between the people administering the pension scheme and the people who are running the investments within the pension scheme? I think there have been cases where there have been, but it's, it's also possible for the pension administrator not, not to be directly colluding or even indirectly colluding if their due diligence about what they allow to be invested in the pensions they run isn't tight enough, then they could be used. Arguably, you could say they're a victim. They're obviously not a victim in the same way as the person being scammed. So, yeah, so I, I, I think it's probably rarer that the administrators or providers are in collusion with those making the investment. But it's, yeah, so it's whether they've got their due diligence processes in place. And are we talking here predominantly about self-invested personal pensions or small self-invested schemes? Because presumably typically it's one of the two, right? It's by the nature of the scheme, the wider the investment choice that's allowed, the more chance there is of having something in there that may not be appropriate. So if you've got, let's go with the SAS, allows a huge variety of investments that might allow unauthorised investments or, sorry, non-regulated investments in the SaaS, then that's a higher risk. Whether a particular SaaS provider is themselves of higher risk of being caught up in a pension scam then depends on what questions they're asking before they allow investments in their pension. And the, and the same would apply to SIPs as well. So. <laughs> And obviously, as a company, we, we run the SEP, but we've also got quite clear controls on what we allow to be invested in within that SEP. Right. And I wouldn't want to make this about the Hargreaves, but I mean, whether you're a SIP provider or you're a success administrator, I mean, surely there's an onus on the pension provider to take some responsibility for what investments they're allowing within their wrap? Absolutely. I think you find for. FCA regulated pensions, then that would be, especially with consumer duty coming in, there's that duty of care, if you like, to make sure that what you're offering in your pension is appropriate for your target market, i.e. 
the people that are using your pension. Okay, so we'll, we'll, we'll come on to some of the current problems around the transfers and, and some of the non-specific issues and why those are risen. But, I mean, for that point, Jerry, it's a simplistic response to this, well, okay, consumer duty will come along and all the SIP providers will take a bit more care about what, what they're allowing their customers to do within the arrangements that they, they operate. So that'll solve the problem. They don't jump down with all down the back team, right? You'd have thought so. Some, sometimes it's one of those things that can seem frustrating in that the pension provider that gets targeted can be the one that allowed the uh, transfer to the scheme, which then allowed a dodgy investment to be in there. So rather than going for the dodgy investment provider, or the pension scheme that actually allowed that investment provider to use it, they go to the easier picking further up the chain I'll just unpack that. So what you're talking about there is the complaint process, the, the ombudsman, you know, they will hold Harvey's Lansdowne culpable for having transferred the money to the Dodging Pension. It's your fault rather than the fault of the people running the Dodging Pension. Is that what I think essentially that can be what happens. In some ways, you can't really blame people for doing that. If you've transferred your pension somewhere and it's gone, so the investment provider, there might be no one to go after there. The pension provider that provided the pension, they could have gone under. So it's where do you go to get your money back? We'll go to Hargreaves Lansdowne. You guys have got lots of money. Yeah, no, I can see how that works. Absolutely. So, but but that that then inevitably means that you guys are going to be ultra cautious about where you allow your customers to transfer their money to. But they have a statutory right to a transfer, don't they? So, I mean, oh, sorry, and there's there's a couple of things going on here because there's there's the DB scheme one, there's people trying to transfer money out of occupation, DB schemes. But there's also people that hold money with you or standard life or first convention or whatever. And, and to that point there, I can understand you guys being really careful about where you allow the money to go if you're going to be on the hook for what happens to it subsequently, right? Yeah, it's partly that. And it's also you're looking after your clients, you're looking after your members. And yes, they might be moving on elsewhere, but you do want the last thing that you're doing for them to be as good as it possibly can be. Yeah. But equally, I mean, I've, I've come across plenty of cases of people getting really irked at having put in a transfer request, which may or may not be a prudent thing to do. Maybe the money may or may not be going somewhere that's sensible and safe. But then you guys, for entirely sound reasons, say, hang on, I'm just going to do a bit more checking before we send that money across to that company you've asked to send it to. And the customer gets kind of cross about that, right? And then you get complaints for not having sent the money quick enough. Yeah, definitely. It's In some cases, it almost feels like you're treading a line where you slip either way and you lose. And yes, people do do get annoyed if we're taking longer to transfer because we're doing those checks. And you can get the accusation that you're just trying to hold on to the money for a little bit longer so you can make a little bit more out of it before transferring, when the reality is it would be far simpler just to, on your head be it, off you go, you should have checked, wash your hands of it. That wouldn't be the right thing to do. The starting point for this was I have a statutory right to If I have my money to best of way, particularly if it's in a contract, I have a legal right to ask you to send that money somewhere else. And you can't say no to that. But then coming back to what you said earlier on, the industry was concerned about how it, 
handle that legal right that customers have because they could see there were risks to the customers. So the industry went to the government and said, can we, can we do something about this? Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. It took a while because it, it's legislation, it's complicated. You've got all the process to go through, but all the industry was asking for was, if we see something that's dodgy, can you give us the power to at least either stop the transfer and then it later developed into the idea of sort of this intermediate step of refer the member to guidance. They take their guidance on how to identify a pension scam. And then the member can make a fully informed decision about whether they still want to transfer. And I'm trying to remember there was a treasury consultation this back in what, about 2018? Was around then that the industry first started kind of, with that connection between the industry and the government really started to kind of go somewhere with it. And the treasurer came to us and said, okay, if we're going to have to listen to this, what it need to look like? Is that, is that the right time? I think that's about, about right, because first there had to be sort of changes to the Pensions Act. So that's big legislation that needs to go through Parliament, quite a long process. And then once that had been done, it was secondary legislation, which still has to go through Parliament, but is all, it's a much quicker process. So it did, it did take quite a long time to do. And also there was a lot of DWP consultation with the industry. They were saying, this is what we want to do. Does this work? And so people had their chance to say, yes, it will. No, it won't. So I, th- I think it was fairly well thought out. I know others all disagree. but <laughs> Why? Why will they disagree? I think the when consulting and when putting the legislation together, there were two main assumptions being made. The first one is that pension schemes were already doing this due diligence. They were doing the checks before transferring. So adding in the extra step at the end where you could either stop transfer or refer to guidance isn't a huge extra step. If that assumption wasn't right and no due diligence was being undertaken, then yes, you have suddenly got to put in processes that should probably have been there in the first place and then the second assumption was that all pension schemes had the ability to make a discretionary transfer as in they could decide whether to transfer if the member didn't have that legal right to transfer to take an example a drawdown to drawdown pension because of the way the pension rules are written no one's got a legal right for a drawdown to drawdown transfer based on the legislation. But despite that, drawdown to drawdown transfers still take place and no pension scheme's going to choose or refuse people the ability to make that transfer without a very good reason. So that is a discretionary Yes. So is there a problem there with schemes having that discretion and, and because effectively at that point, it's, it's, back, it's, it's back on you guys, whether it's Hargreaves doing discretionary drawdown to drawdown transfer, or the trustees and occupation printing scheme making a discretionary decision about whether to allow the transfer or not. That discretion, is that a problem? I think it depends what you're used to. In that if, you, if you've got discretion to make a transfer, then every, every transfer you're making a choice about whether you will transfer or not. If you're used to doing that, then that's, that seems normal and natural. If you've previously only transferred because in cases where there was that legal right to transfer, 
and you weren't making the decision about whether to transfer, then that could be a bit of a step change in process. You've highlighted the sort of comparison with the requirements to take advice on DB transfers and how that's relevant to the scam. So just talk a little bit about that. Yep, I think in some ways that could have caused a bit of confusion. So this was directly linked to the pension freedoms, where there were concerns that people would transfer all their money out of the DB scheme, where it was not nice and secure. And generally, the assumption is that you, you're better off staying in your DB scheme, your final salary pension scheme, not always, but usually. So then there was a requirement brought in where if you as a trustee of your of the defined benefit pension scheme were asked to transfer the member's pension out, if that was worth over 30,000, then you had to check that the member had taken advice on transferring. And if they hadn't taken advice, then you couldn't transfer. Now that was almost standalone, but you then had the problem of the statutory transfer right. So at the same time, that legal right to transfer was amended, separate piece of legislation. So it was modifying the statutory transfer right, so it no longer applied. You then fast forward a few years to the um, more recent regulations, and then that did a similar thing in that it modified that statutory transfer right. But what it didn't do was put in an additional requirement forcing people forcing the seeding pension scheme to be doing checks or to be refusing transfers if there were red flags. So that's back to your point around pension schemes, exercising that discretion in a competence and sensible way. Exactly. Whereas for the defined benefit transfers, they didn't have that choice. Those schemes that had that obligation not to transfer now there is no obligation not to transfer if there's a red flag or there's no obligation to refer to guidance if there's an amber flag. But in many cases, that will still be the right thing to do. It's just that as a scheme, you've got to make the decision about whether it is the right thing to do. So the, it was, was it the DWP uh, legislation that introduced the, the red and the amber flags that essentially said, yeah. These are the circumstances in which you can block the transfer, and these are the circumstances in which you can send Yes. And I think the important point there is that those flags only apply to statutory transfers, so where the member had that legal right to transfer. If it didn't stop pension schemes making discretionary transfers, provided their scheme rules allowed them to do it. Okay. So we've got statutory transfers where the red and amber flags apply, and we've got discretionary transfers where it's back to the administrator or the trustee of the pension scheme to make new forms of choice. But with the with the flags, this seems to have got quite a lot of people annoyed in the industry because there are arguments that they're being used inappropriately, or schemes that deliver the hiding items and delay transfers, or you know, they create a backlog at maps where people get sent off for guidance and then they have to wait weeks for what should be a straightforward transfer. So that doesn't, I mean, from what I understand, that's not working so well. What are your thoughts? Again, I, th- I think this is another one where it sort of splits between whether you can make a statutory discretionary transfer or not. 
if you've got the ability to make a discretionary transfer, then you've also got the responsibility of that decision. So it's not a case of you're choosing to make a discretionary transfer or you're not making a decision. You are making a decision. You're looking at the facts of the case and you're saying, based on what I know, I've got the ability to say refer to guidance because there is an amber flag. But is that the right thing to do? Is that the proper decision? Should I be referring a member to guidance on how to identify a pension scam purely because they allow an overseas investment in the scheme? When it's just an international equity fund that can be invested in something. Exactly. But where you can have issues is there are some pension schemes that because of the way their scheme rules are set, they can only make a statutory transfer. And if they can only make a statutory transfer, if the member hasn't got a statutory transfer right, then they can't make that transfer. It would be breaching their scheme rules. And that's where we might need to have a few tweaks to those red and amber flags. Okay, so because, I mean, again, from what I hear, from multiple sources, you know, there's a lot of irritation across the industry. I think the, you know, the red and amber flags, which were introduced with the best of intentions to protect consumers, do seem to have caused some, some blockages and some delays that are just costing businesses and therefore customers money and they're upsetting people. And everything I hear says the system's not working particularly well. So, so I guess that's the first thing. And then you know, if you agree with that, what, what do we need to do to make it work better? I think first, first thing is making sure pension schemes are doing what they can without changing legislation. And again, as I keep saying, that splits down to whether you've got the ability to make a discretionary transfer or not. If you've got that ability and you're making proper decisions, then no one should be being referred to guidance even if they've identified a flag, but you shouldn't be referring if there is no reason to think that there's a pension scam involved. Well, in the vast majority of cases, it's not. Right? So, so, so 90, 98% of transfers should, if you're exercising your discretion competently, should just be going through. We've had a lot we're sending one to kind of thing, yeah? Yeah, exactly. I think there are some pension schemes that have got concerns that if they made that decision to transfer, the member transferred to a perfectly genuine scheme, but then lost money because it's an investment, investments go up and down, that they could then come back to the pension scheme that made the transfer and say, you could have referred me to guidance, you didn't, therefore I've lost money. Okay, and what are your thoughts on any of that? Is that a legitimate concern? Is there a risk the pension ombudsman would do that? Oh, you lost money, well, maybe the scheme should have sent you for guidance. Can can we clarify that situation at all? I think it'd be fantastic if it could be clarified. So it might be that we have to wait for some cases to go through. But I think the one thing to be thinking about is if someone was... Would it have made a difference to what happened to the member? If I want to transfer to, say, an insurance company pension fund that's got an overseas investment, would taking guidance on how to identify a pension scam make any difference to whether I'd transfer? Because that guidance would have nothing to do with the risks of investing generally. It would be about things to look out for, and there wouldn't be anything that would have caused me concern. Okay, so we could get to a point where 
the discretionary transfers. If, it's, if they've got clarity in terms of what, what is and isn't a risk, and I mean, not just a risk for the member, but a risk for the scheme, the seeding scheme, it's a risk for them to send across an exercise of that discretion. That should get simpler in due course. It, it should do. There will, there will always be, if you like, borderline cases where different schemes might make different decisions based on the same facts. But as long as those decisions are being made properly, and in good taking it and in good faith, I think it's the, if you've got a blanket, we're referring everyone to guidance just in case. I think that's one end completely off the scale. Yeah, okay. So then, and on the statutory transfers, where it's just a case of, well, look, you know, there's an overseas investment on this. And so I had to, I had to amber flag Is that aspect of the system working well or not? I think that is one of the things that does need to be looked at. And arguably, the overseas investment and the flag isn't really needed. It's one of these, these flags all came from sort of industry warning signs. And when they were being suggested, everyone knew what they meant when they were saying overseas investments. They were talking about the dodgy overseas hotel type investments they weren't talking about a normal managed balance fund but with all the other flags i think it's hard to think of uh, if you like dodgy investments which wouldn't be caught by another flag so arguably the overseas investments flag isn't really needed so is there consensus across the industry on that point? Is there, is there kind of momentum towards a bit of a review? Because I mean, the government has to do a review of this well, sometime this year in terms of the efficacy of that, that regulation. So when they do that and they come and talk to the industry and say, so guys, how's it going? They're going to get a clear message back from the industry on that? Can't speak for the whole industry, but I'd have thought so with overseas investments because someone can obviously contradict me quite easily, I'm sure. But unless you can come up with an investment that causes you concern, it would mean that you would want to stop that transfer, which isn't covered by another flag, then you simply don't need that overseas investment flag. And then it solves the problem for those schemes that can only make statutory transfers. So watch the space and all that. A couple of other things I wanted to touch on before we wrap up. So one is dashboards are coming. Is that going to make a difference? Uh, what, what are your thoughts on all of that? Is that going to accelerate activity or is everyone going to say, well, I can see where my money is on the dashboard now. I don't need to transfer it anymore. It's an interesting one. It's obviously good that people can see where their pensions are. And I think one of the reasons for consolidating is so that you've got, got them all in one place. I think there will still be people that will want to have their pensions physically in the same place because it does make it easier to manage. Sure, yeah. you know, talk to one person rather than six people. So it's, that seems to make sense. Yeah. Okay, and the other thing I just wanted to touch on was, because it got me a bit confused, which is never that hard to start with, but there's all the kind of, there was Project Bloom and there's Action Forward, and I wasn't entirely clear about who's who's got their hands on the steering wheel of all this kind of high-level stuff of how we manage the fraud risk in relation to pensions. Can you, can you just talk about that at all? I will give it a go. I think Project Bloom's been renamed, only I can't remember what it's 
what it's now called i'm afraid <laughs> but yeah there's a there's a lot going on and i think as as you said earlier it's with all these fraud stuff if you cut one head off another one's going to appear and I think the important thing about the pension scam stuff is that it, we are talking about scams that are taking place within the pension. It isn't the pension itself that's the issue, it's the investments. And I think then the next stage is once the money is out of the pension, so you've hit 55, you can take it all out, you have then got a lump of money. And again, I, th- I think that makes a target. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with that. I think part of the problem with return inflation and kind of stuff is you can look back at things like the, the Miracle Maxwell scandal about invisible life and, and others and you know what lodges in people's minds is just oh, pensions will rip off you know so and so had his money in a pension and someone stole it and I think there's always that risk that's uh, and obviously there's the risk of the individuals and that's the most sort of thing present problem is people lose their life savings and that's horrible there is also the problem that it can make it that much harder for the industry to help everybody else provide for everything. Definitely. And it's, again, it goes back to it's, yes, it's pensions that get targeted, but that's because that's where the money is. Good stuff. Well, let's see if we try and keep it that way. Phil, thanks very much for talking to me. Thank you very much for having me. So there you go. I checked afterwards and Project Bloom is now known as the Pension Scams Action Group which is at least a little less ambiguous. If you found this podcast useful, then do please share it, like it, leave glowing reviews and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening.